episode of Talking Movies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Rod Sony. And I'm your other co-host, Sam. Thank you for joining us. I'm coming off the heels of some kind of crazy news earlier in the week. Be sure to check out that episode if you're curious. We talked about HBO Max dropping the entire 2021 major uh, Warner Brothers slate on the streaming platform uh, for the entire year. Movies are going to be simultaneously in theaters and on HBO Max. So uh, go back and check out that episode. I believe we released it on Wednesday, Thursday, whenever the news dropped us uh, so a couple days ago. But uh, we have another news episode for you guys. And we finally have a pretty good amount of new release reviews to talk about. Some of it will be stuff that we talked about in the past that we've now both seen and some of it will be new. Um, Sam, do you remember, I mean, like this was a year ago, a little over a year ago, we were at Middleburg Film Festival. We were walking down the street or at the hotel or something and you brought up Two's Theory to me and it was like, I, I didn't know what, <laughs> I, I had an idea of what Two's Theory was, but I didn't know it by that term. I just thought it was like, you know, you mentioned something and then something like related to it happened. It appears in your life. Yeah, like everything and, happens in Two's. Yeah. And I feel like our podcast has become that because you, you yourself have like <laughs> randomly said something and the news is broken out like a couple days after that. And, and this week I, I was the perpetrator of that fact. Um, we were talking about Kong last week and, and I was talking about Skull Island and Jordan Vote Roberts and I said something about his Metal Gear Solid movie and like literally the next day, Monday or Tuesday or something, we get news that Oscar Isaac is set to play Solid Snake in this film. Um, from what it sounds like, Sony is trying to fast track this project. It's obviously based on the Hideo Kojima video game. Um, script is being written by Derek Connolly, who's partnered with Colin Trevorrow in the past. Um, Oscar Isaac's current schedule looks like Scenes of a Marriage, Moon Knight, Great, Great Machine, which we talked about, and Francis and the Godfather. So he's very, very busy, and this just adds to the sort of busy schedule. But uh, you know, beside the fact that we continue to predict the future, what do you think about this news? Well, I'm really scared of the fact that it's going to be a video game adaptation and, you know, it could be a stain on Oscar Isaac's filmography because up until, you know, ever, there hasn't been a, at least a great video game adaptation. I don't know people, there, there's fans for like the Warcraft movie that came out a couple of years ago, fans of like the Dune, Dune movie with uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, some others that came out recently, but, you know, I don't think that this has a lot in way of, you know, optimism because of the fact that Jordan didn't do such a great job with, you know, King Kong or Kong Skull Islands, just because, you know, he had an insane cast with that. He had Brie Larson, he had uh, Tom Hiddleston, and, you know, a huge budget, Samuel L. Jackson, John Goodman, like, that cast was insanely stacked, and the fact that they didn't do as well as it should have done makes me very wary about how this was going to turn out. So, I mean, like, this is obviously confirmation, right, that this project is definitely moving forward, because I think when you get a name like Oscar Isaac attached to a project, there's very little doubt that it'll get made, because he's one of the biggest movie stars, I think, on the planet right now. He's my favorite actor working today. I think I've said that on mm -hmm. the podcast before. And, and on the front of Kong Solo, and yeah, we talked about how we weren't fans of it, and you talk about, you know, the lack of success for video game movies, where I think I'm a little bit more confident with this one is that Jordan Vogt Roberts is, like, he's a writer, director of video games as well, and he's a hardcore video game fan does that give you any more faith because he's just so loyal to the source material and such an avid video game player um yeah it'll give me faith just because of the fact that it's like a it's a passion project that like we saw what happened with uh chernobyl and craig mazin like craig mazin like made the hangover movies he wrote those movies but then like those are movies for the purpose of you know making money essentially but when he puts when someone puts like their passion into a project like this it could have turned into another chernobyl so the fact that you know he is someone who is well versed in the video game industry he's a video game writer himself he is versed in the in the film industry because of the fact that he is a director so there is optimism there but because of the 
track record that video game movies have you know that's where my most of my pessimism comes from but um i don't have much in way of knowledge with metal gear solid i know it's a very well regarded uh, video game franchise i don't know if it's a franchise uh hideo kojima is a very respected individual within the video game community so there are positives to look for in this uh, in this uh, news headline but you know because of the fact that it is a video game movie is why i'm pessimistic I think the like biggest positive fr- from that group of positives, while they are limited, is that Oscar Isaac tends to pick better projects. I know he's had his misses with like something like Apocalypse recently, but more often than not, mm, I feel like Oscar I keep Isaac. Forgetting he's in that movie. Yeah, right. Yeah, he, he it's very forgettable movie, and you forget that he's even in it because of all the makeup. But like more often than not, right, Oscar Isaac, I feel like he picks pretty good movies for himself. Like obviously with Star Wars, he that kicked off on a pretty good note. Um, Ex Machina, uh, so much stuff over the past few years that Inside Llewyn Davis, obviously one of my favorite movies like this guy just knows how to pick projects and yeah he's sure he has some misses That's true um the last thing i want to say on this point is i hope boss logic is like getting cut of some of these pays because like this has got to be like the fourth <laughs> or fifth casting news that's come out in recent memory that he was a part of like he did the rosario dawson ahsoka mock-up he did the robert pattinson batman mock-up is there any others that come to mind for you because this guy's like this guy's just putting out fan casting and everybody's like yeah this is it this is it this is what we need to go with that guy He's just really talented at what he does, and he's very intelligent in the way he executes his his uh, his edits on his Instagram page. I hope he is getting cuts because, like, I just want to. He's a he's a great guy. Like, if you see if you follow his Instagram, you get to know him. He's a really like genuine individual. So you know, you know, applause to him because he's doing a great job. Yeah, I absolutely love his art. And if you haven't seen his Instagram page, I would definitely check it out because his stuff is insane. Um, but yeah, that's that's all I got on this one, really. I, I'm really excited for this one just because Oscar Isaac has attached himself to it. So I hope it does turn out as good as we're hoping it does. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. Next up on the news docket here for our major stories of the week, Margot Robbie is in talks to replace Emma Stone in Damien Chazelle's Babylon. I think we talked about Babylon a while back, like, you know, maybe a full year ago when we started this podcast pretty much um but yeah at the time emma stone was attached brad pitt is also co-starring in the project it's about old-time hollywood uh the transition from silent films to talkies Uh, it's gonna have real people as well as some fictionalized characters from what i understand um Emma Stone is reportedly leaving the project due to scheduling conflicts. Um, so Margot Robbie is going to be stepping into that role. And we also got news from Collider that Lee Jun Lee is going to also be starring as Anna Mae Wong, who was a real life person, one of Hollywood's first Chinese American stars. So these are two new casting announcements. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, I don't know if you have any familiar with Lee Jun Lee at all. And um, if you do, do you know, any, like, do you like her work? And also from the perspective of Robbie and Stone, do you think that, Robbie filling into this role is a better fit because obviously Chazelle has a little bit of prior relationship with Emma Stone. What's your thoughts on this replacement here? Yeah, I was just going to mention the fact that I think it's a shame that Emma Stone's leaving the project because of the fact that she has that chemistry with Damien Chazelle because of La La Land. But, you know, this has happened before. I think she was attached to being the Little Woman movie and she was uh, replaced by Emma Watson, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, she was. So because of that fact, I mean, it's 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 sad to say, but she's you know, an insanely talented actor. So she's going to land on her feet wherever she is. But the fact that Margot Robbie is in this movie makes me really excited because I haven't seen her in a movie I've actually really liked or seen her as a prominent figure in since I, Tanya. Like she had a minor role in um, Hollywood with, uh, with Tarantino and Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio. And she had... Birds of Prey that came out this year <laughs> that I wasn't a big fan of, but you know, seeing her pairing herself off with like someone as talented as Damien Chazelle and Brad Pitt is very exciting to me. 
re-teaming with Brad Pitt because obviously Once Upon a Time, that, I don't think they had any scenes together, right? right they were just right. in the same movie together. Um, this might be a bit of a hot take, but I think Margot Robbie is the best actress working today. Um, hmm. I, I would put her in any movie before any other actress, especially after her most recent work, um, particularly with this past year with stuff like Bombshell and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like those two performances, they're very different in the way that they mm. are portrayed, but they're both like, bombshells are good yeah yeah she nailed both of them and obviously having the first oscar nomination with i Tonya, um i wouldn't have been upset with her winning for i Tonya. i thought she was that good in that movie and, i mean you go back to her breakout role in wolf of wall street like she stole that movie from most of the actors and that that's a stacked cast and she stood like side by side with leo dicaprio and jonah hill and matthew mcconaughey like she was right up there with how good those guys were and she, i really think that she is the best actress working today and that's why i'm okay with her filling well, in for emma stone l- let me ask you this then because of the fact that it's set in a shifting moment like as a hollywood historical movie movie yes. and you don't really have a but the best track record with hollywood historical movies does that kind of give you pessimism for this um which ones are you project? talking about specifically in terms of track record I remember just recently, uh, Trumbo, most recently, when I was sure, talking about okay. reviewed it uh, okay. four or five months ago. Yeah, and we'll talk about another yeah, you know. Hollywood movie here in just a little bit. Um, <laughs> Hollywood I, history. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I have my faith in, in Damien Chazelle. I think Damien Chazelle is a better filmmaker than the team that was involved in Trumbo, first of all. Um, mm-hmm. I also just think that, you know, Brad Pitt, we've talked about him being only attaching himself really to good projects true, most of the true, time true, that true. that gives me a little bit of faith here and he, he and Chazelle have not teamed up before so the fact that they're teaming up is exciting and Chazelle has such a deep love for Hollywood I mean you saw it with La La Land um and, and the way that he sort of portrayed modern day Hollywood in such a beautiful light I'm excited to see because I'm sure he has a s- similar deep rooted history in the history of Hollywood not just in sort of the day the modern day Hollywood that he lives in so I'm interested to see how he sort of takes that and, and goes back in time and uses the same sensibilities that he painted LA with in La La Land and then tries to tell more of a true story the transition really to talkies like this is a very important story in the t- in the history of cinema and i don't think we've really seen it portrayed on screen so i'm also excited for him to take on that yeah. um I-, I wanted to throw That's something out here and-, and i don't really know if it's like i don't know if it's inappropriate for me to say this but i, I don't know if this is like <laughs> emma stone i don't know if it's really scheduled I'm-, I'm curious do you think she might be pregnant because she just got married right Ooh, that's I don't. Oh, that's a good. That's a good speculation. I would have. I would. I really don't know. Yeah, I, I don't. She, I don't keep up with the lives of the <laughs> lives of celebrities. I only care about the works they do. I think she got married um, within the I'm past year. I think she got married. She has past two year. upcoming projects. She's playing Corella Deville in the Disney live action. Right. Of what was it? 101 Dalmatians. Yeah. And she has an untitled Greek national opera project scheduled for next year. But like, but I think that's the, only two movies. She could. She, go ahead. No, I was going to say, that's only two movies. She could definitely have pulled off Babylon with Damien Chazelle. So it could be that she is pregnant. Yeah, I'm wondering, call. I'm wondering if it's just because of like, because yeah, if you mentioned the fact that she only has two projects, like scheduling conflict seems a little bit of a, I don't want to say weak it's excuse, ambiguous. but yeah, it's a bit ambiguous. Exactly. Yeah. So like, I just don't know if it's really the right... I don't know if it's the right way to word this, but I'm sure that, you know, that's her personal life. I don't want to speculate too much on it. Obviously, if she wants to keep that close to the chest, then she's more than welcome to do that. That's her own life. Um, and if, if she's ready to start a family, mm-hmm. then by all means, I think that that's a smart move for her. I, I was just curious if, if you had even given any thought to that, because that just kind of came to my mind. Didn't she, she says here that she was actually a voice actor in the Croods movie. 
but that's already been shot and edited and it's already out in theaters yeah that's out right uh, <laughs> i think that's out <laughs> that's already that's that's out um yeah, yeah it says the emma stone babylon thing mm. it ex- exits yeah i don't see anything else on here that's very interesting yeah there's just just an idea i just wanted to throw that out there but um let's go ahead and get into rapid fire now that was sort of it for the major news stories of the week uh russo brothers have confirmed that that ryan gosling chris evans netflix spy project that we talked about a while back is going to be spawning a franchise as we sort of speculated to uh vera farmiga Florence Pugh and Zon McLaren are joining Jeremy Renner and Haley Steinfeld in the Hawkeye TV series. HBO showed us some concept art for House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones spinoff, and we got word that is going to start production in 2021. David O. Russell is enlisting, speaking of Margot Robbie, she's in David O. Russell's new movie. He's enlisted Hilder, who did the score for Joker to uh, score his next project. Hiroyuki Sanada has joined Brad Pitt and Lady Gaga in Bullet Train, and we got first reactions for Wonder Woman 1984, and across the board, they're pretty positive. We'll put a link to uh, the Collider article that kind of collected the tweets in the description, but, you know, just so you have an idea, Steve Weintraub, who runs Collider yesterday, saw Wonder Woman 1984. My first time seeing a movie in theater no matter what system you have at home nothing will ever replace the magic of the big screen um you know across the board most of the people have been pretty positive about 84 uh is there anything on this list that you wanted to hone in on um, yeah the florence pew being attached to the Haley steinfeld hawkeye i guess spinoff of jeremy renner's character she's already a character in the black widow movie that's supposed to, that was supposed to come out this year right very curious as to how that pans out i don't know i don't know if they make many references references of that character in hawkeye and well the she's black a widow movie. she's playing black widow's or, sister right correct that's what i'm so curious about so maybe I, because of the fact that jeremy renner and um scarlett johansson's characters have such a, such a close relationship i guess they meet through mutual relationships right yeah is the most logical i don't know way to put it but um yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's interesting we, we have to wait to see when once the movie comes out if it ever comes out yeah right. um <laughs> i think the fact that it, it, Hilder is attaching herself to a David O. Russell movie, which is a movie that me and you aren't, you know, huge on because we're not huge on David O. Russell. But the fact that she's attached herself to it, you know, because we're talking about her win, her very justifiable win for the Oscars this past year, and you know, having her having zero projects. I think I mentioned that in that podcast episode with Joker. I think this is something that's very exciting to look forward to. Um, we get more Hilder music. Yeah, yeah, I cannot wait to get more Hilder music. It's been it's been too long. It's only been a year, and it's already been too long. Um, I just want to hone in on Hiroyuki Sonata joining Brad Pitt and Lady Gaga. I feel like most people don't even know who Hiroyuki Sonata is, and the reason I'm most familiar with him is because a um, couple movies that I've seen him in, Wolverine being the first, uh, the 2013 Wolverine, not Wolverine Origins. Um, he had a role in that. Uh, he was also in Avengers: Ed Game. Do you remember the sa- speaking of Jeremy Renner? Do you remember the samurai sequence in Japan um, and the face off that Jeremy Renner has? Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that he's the the guy that he's facing off against is Hiroyuki Sonata, but most prominently for me personally is Westworld. Um, he was sort of the main samurai figure in Shogun World and Westworld, and he just completely blew me away with that performance. I absolutely fell in love with him, and he's he's got some movies in his sort of filmography that I need to go back and see, particularly The Twilight Samurai, which was nominated for Best Foreign Film back in like '02, I believe it was. Um, mm. But he he's one of these Japanese actors that I'm really excited to be joining this cast. And I'm really excited also at the fact that this film, because it is based off of manga, they are assembling, you know, a mix of, you know, you've got your Brad Pitt's and Lady Gaga's and Logan Lerman's and Zazie Beats, but you've also got a pretty, you know, pretty solid handful of Japanese actors when you look at the sort of, you know, you look at the casting here, you got Andrew Koji, Hiroyuki Sonata, Masioka, like there's a pretty good number. And what I'm, what excites me about this casting is that like, you know, bullet trains are obviously 
pretty prominent things in Japan. I, I assume that this movie is going to be based in Japan, right? So like, you don't want to just stick a bunch of white actors in a Japanese <laughs> setting in a Japanese movie and then have it centered around them without having Japanese actors having some sort of centric role. So that that's just what's exciting me about this. It makes the most sense. But he was also um, Jackie Chan's brother in the Rush Hour 3 movie. Oh, was he really? I didn't even know that. (laughs) Yeah, his name was Kenji in the movie, and he plays his brother. Huh, that's interesting. (laughs) I had no idea. He's a great actor. He's he's a really, really great actor, and I'm hoping that maybe this project will put him in front of a few more eyes and get people excited about where his film uh where his filmography could go from here now that he's transitioning into Mm. because i think a lot of the stuff they did early in his career was japanese um but he's he's kind of coming especially in like the later 2000s he's coming a pretty good mix of uh, american language and japanese stuff so i'm excited to see him expand his range um any any thoughts on the wonder woman reactions um no it doesn't surprise me i think the fact that you know it's patty jenkins and galgado and you know the first one was beloved by everybody i think you know it was a solid movie that was good i still prefer man of steel mm-hmm. out of the dcu movies but the fact that this is like a very positive reaction doesn't surprise me i'm just looking forward to finally seeing this movie mm-hmm. over on hbo whenever it comes out but december you know. 25th december 25th christmas day oh christmas day we're oh, almost there awesome so yeah we're almost there um, <laughs> let's go ahead and get into reviews now so we've got a pretty good amount of overlapping reviews here of some new releases like i said some stuff that we've already talked about before but uh there's one movie on here sam that i'm seeing that we haven't talked about that we're not going to overlap on i seen it in the past but it seems like it's an old movie that you went back in time and watched <laughs> why well, i had to do the little feature this week but <laughs> i'll start off my reviews this week with a uh, nomad land it's a movie uh starring Frances mcdormand and you know directed by chloe zhao who we're both huge fans of it's about this woman who lives in her rv and just tra- traverses the entire united states and just lives out of her rv and i think when we first talked about chloe zhao it was when you first reviewed him we got that first look at the new york film festival i believe it was and you know (laughs) you had an insanely positive reaction to it and you know i was really looking forward to it because i was such a huge fan of uh of chloe zhao and i still am i think this is hold on hold on hold on hold on hold on hold on on. can we talk about the fact first off that i saved your life here because first off i sent you a link to that new york film festival screening and you were just like what's this i'm not even gonna click it yes and then i sent it to you again because lincoln center had an online screening for this entire week and you were like all right finally i'll click this one and i'll get in there <laughs> so you're welcome <laughs> shout out raj but i also give raj a lot of anime recommendations so we'll call it even yeah, fair enough but um you know i think this is a really very very deeply human very you know well-made movie it does a great job of you know it feels very very natural like like it wouldn't surprise me. I didn't look up the, the trivia for this movie because I didn't have time. But it wouldn't surprise me if the people within this movie were actual real life people because I don't know how Chloe's out does it. They but were. she's able to make, you know, they were like the real life people. So so she's able to make these non-actors feel like, you know, actual actors in the movie, but also feel like themselves at the same time. Like it doesn't come off as amateurish at all. It feels like, you know, as professional as it can be done. And, it, you know, She's the only one who can possibly do something like that because of the fact that it just feels how human and natural it was. But if I'm comparing it to a movie that I consider a masterpiece, her previous one before this one was called The Writer, it doesn't feel as urgent or as um, impactful as it is, but I still think it's very well made. And I'm really glad that I got a chance to watch this one over the weekend. Yeah, I mean, the fact that she pulls, per, you know, the all the people that are surrounding Frances McDormand in this movie are all nomads. They're not just regular people, they're all nomads. And that's obviously what she did with The Writer as well. Those are all people who, you know, Brady Chandra, I believe is his name, is an actual cowboy. So like it's very close to them, but she's able to bring such strong performances out of her supporting cast. And what I relayed to you before you started watching the movie was 
mm-hmm. when I at the time when I saw the movie like back in September I think it was I, I absolutely loved it it was like my favorite movie of the year it just hasn't stuck with me the way the writer did um it, it's still you know it's still up there like it's still probably in my top 10 for this point in the year but it could easily fall out I think and the reason being I just think the writer had so much more emotional resonance with me I think Nomadland is just as well made it's just the story doesn't feel quite as personal and quite as emotional to me I'll say this is like the core themes of both movies one of them the writer being the sense of identity is something that we can all grab with but with the nomad land this the theme of this one being the sense of community and the the essence of having people around you to you know embark on this journey we call life and how essential that is i think it's just something that it isn't as i guess you could say as impactful as i just previously said because of the fact that people can't really relate to it or people kind of take the sense of having a community for granted essentially whereas people are always constantly grappling with who they are as individuals and which is why i think the writer's a better movie, but I still think this is a great movie. Yeah, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because something that Chloe Zhao does so well is she sort of gives you a window into this lifestyle that you would never even consider, like, you know, researching or anything like that. Like, you would never think that you would give, like, nomads the time of day, and that mm-hmm. sounds disrespectful, and quite frankly, it is disrespectful but just because of the comfort in which we live our own lives, and these people are living such different lives from us, and for Chloe Zhao to give us such an intimate and pretty authentic, from what it seems, picture and window into how those people live their lives and why they're satisfied with living their lives that way, I think that is what's special about Nomadland, and mm-hmm. By all means, like, I think this is definitely, like, sort of your front runner right now for Best Picture. Um, it just didn't hit me the way it hit for her previous work. And that doesn't mean I didn't like this movie. I still love this movie. No, yeah. It's just, like, yeah. comparing it to the ride, or it, that's a tough comparison, so. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know if you want me to get me to my next one, or if you want me to co- uh, combine that with Mank. Yeah, let's combine that with Mank. So I'll quickly talk about the movie that I saw, that Sam saw during festival season that I wasn't able to see that finally caught up with, and that's Sound of Metal, the Riz Ahmed uh, going going deaf. Um, he's a drummer who's going deaf, um, how he grapples with it. Um, I think this is probably one of the better movies of the year so far. I absolutely mm-hmm. love this movie. At first off, like you, ta- you talked about it when you when you spoke about it from Middleburg, Riz Ahmed's performance is just, I think this is probably my best, the best performance of the year so far in terms of film. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's my number one performance of the year. Um, actually, I don't even think it's close. <laughs> I think it's far and away the best performance of the year that I've seen so far. And, and it's very different from what I was expecting because like we talked about the trailer and I talked about how it kind of seemed like a thriller or horror in the way that it was sort of portrayed. And it's actually a very quiet and intimate movie and it's sort of Riz Mm -hmm. you know struggling with the loss of his hearing and that's basically his career that's his life yeah being a musician losing his hearing yeah and you know just sitting with him and seeing how he processes that and grapples with that and I just think that I I agree with you I think you said this movie loses a little bit of steam in the middle right and then it sort of picks Uh, back up towards the end it, it loses steam because of the decision he makes Oh. At the beginning of the third act. Okay, okay. I'm a little bit different from you. I think it loses a little bit of steam towards the middle just because I think it spends a little bit extra time with him uh, sort of living his day-to-day life that you, mm. know, you could have trimmed maybe five to ten minutes off of it and it would have mm. been, like, perfect. Um, that being said, I, I just think the roller coaster that this movie takes you on is just so incredible. And I, I actually really, really love the ending. I feel like the ending is probably yes. six people. But I, I think the ending is spectacular. And, it's you know, perfect. Speaking, yeah. of, speaking of the ending, Olivia Cook is just as good as Riz Ahmed she's uh, she's not getting enough credit because she's not the central figure but like for her to go toe-to-toe with Riz giving this performance um she she needs a little bit more I think credit for the performance that she's getting and, and I would love to see her in the supporting actress race I thought she was really really good this movie was really really good um 
I'm Riz has another movie that's only out in the UK right now uh, called Mogul Mowgli. And I've been trying to figure out if there's a way I can see it. And I can only probably watch it if I get like a VPN and access a British IPN or whatever. I don't even know how, how all that technology VPN stuff works. But, IPS. Yeah, IPS. <laughs> that's what it's called. Yeah. Um, but I, I really want to watch that movie now after watching this one. I, I just want to dig into more of Riz's filmography that I haven't seen yet. Riz needs to get the credit that he's due. Give him the the Oscar or at least give him the nomination and just have people watch his movies because I'm sick of him not being like people not just talking about as much as like people like Leo and Oscar and all these other actors so So, he's so good shout out to Riz he's so good (laughs) Um, but yeah let's go ahead and get into the final review now why don't you start us off with Citizen Kane Yes, so I started, I watched, I literally finished watching Citizen Kane like two hours ago, <laughs> or no, four hours <laughs> two, ago. Two minutes ago. I watched, I, 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 no, no, I, I, did a, I did a double feature. I did Citizen Kane and Mank back to okay, back. Okay, I got you. So I started four, four or five hours ago. Um, you know, it, I don't know if you get this when you're watching an old movie that's considered like a, a masterpiece or a classic, but the pressure of just trying to perceive it as such is kind of like kind of messes with your perception of just watching it by yourself and yeah. in your first viewing <laughs> yeah i don't know if you get that definitely but, you know once you start watching the movie and you, know, you just perceive it as a, as just a movie like it's just a, something as you're watching for the first time and you're interacting with the first time as if you're watching a movie from like 2020 or essentially so that's how i approached this movie i did approach it with the context of it being from 1941 portraying in the, in the 1920s and all that and it's like a black and white movie orson wells you know him being like a very young guy he's like a considered like a kid genius as they called him and you know i'm I'm surprised at how much i enjoyed this movie because i was scared that i was going to be bored by it because like it's a two hour long black and white movie that uh you know i have that you know it's the massive like considered one of the greatest movies of all time and very consistently in like these you know all-time lists throughout yeah. the internet and i think on the a- research on the afi list it is number one still if i'm not mistaken right right so i mean but like the, the direction is great the Orson Wilson is, is insanely charismatic in this movie. It's kind of weird seeing him in this movie because he's the title character. He is like the top billing. He's the director, but he feels almost like a background character in his own movie because people yeah. are telling his story through their perspective. Yeah. And you don't really see him as being someone who is taking the reins of his own story, but it works perfectly. It works insanely well, but you know, like the first two acts are very, very well made. Like, you know, the, 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 the script, written by Herman Mankiewicz, who we're going to talk about in a second, is very biting. It's very snappy. You know, it's very electric. They did such a good job with this movie. Like, I felt, you know, I wasn't tired at all watching this movie. I didn't get bored. I didn't look at my phone. I was, like, very entranced by it. But the third act for me... I wouldn't say it's bad but I, or, or mediocre at all. I just kind of feel like there was a missing piece because once it's revealed what Rosebud is and essentially what Citizen Kane, his name is Charlie Kane in the movie, is um, what his entire journey is and what it is he was missing in his life, you know, it comes to fruition in those final minutes. I was kind of missing that piece because it, instead they focus on his relationship with his second wife. I think his name is, her name was Susan Alexander. And I was hoping that they would kind of go into him being in his own head. Like I would, I would have loved to have spent time with him, just him playing with his thoughts and him, you know, thinking about his childhood, thinking about his mother and the impact of him being shipped out at an early age and what that did to him as an adult and why it made him into the individual that he was at the end of his life. I was hoping we got that component, but I think when you combine the essence of the character being someone who who wants to be loved, wants adulation, wants the the approval of those around him and 
but you know in a, in a very selfish sense and why he created he was created into the person that he was you know and you put into the context of what happened when he was a kid you know they do a good job by just showing rosebud i'm not gonna i was about to say the spoiler <laughs> but what rosebud is and what it means to his history as an individual i think that kind of saves it for me i like it gives me enough to put context to that moment but i was wishing for a, just a bit more moments with uh charlie kane in that movie yeah i i think i'm on the same page as you I, it's been a while since i've seen this movie i didn't get the chance to rewatch it prior to mank but i i remember feeling a pretty similar way and that i think it also has to do with just the hype around citizen kane you mentioned yes. that most people consider the it the greatest movie of all time <laughs> i don't think it's the greatest movie of all time and i can see how you know back in the 30s and 40s it was innovative in its storytelling um it very it, very much that innovation still kind of stands if you ask me and it's you can see the sort of inspiration that it's had on so many modern day directors, um, most specifically this example that we're about to talk about in Mank. Um, but I agree with you. I, I think because you have a 24 year old Orson Welles handling this thing from start to finish, even though Herman Mankiewicz wrote it, Welles still was the director on it. And, and uh, you know, again like people say like this is one of the greatest you know sort of young directing performances of all time but like I, I feel like you can kind of tell that it is more or less a rookie director did you feel that at all um no well, I was gonna mention the fact that with the script at least it kind of felt like a softy brothers essentially just because there were those <laughs> moments where like people were like screaming over each other and talking very yeah. fast uh-huh. and they were like you know very 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 snappy very very witty dialogue it kind of felt like a softy brothers moment so i would just say that this movie aged insanely well but um you know cinematography is very well done because there's a lot of shots in this movie that felt like just like you know frames that you could put in your into your home um but for the direction though i felt like it was very well made for a, a rookie debut okay fair enough uh, maybe it's just because there was similar to what you're saying like a little bit of a hole for me in terms of you know not connecting all the dots cleanly i'm attributing mm-hmm. that to the director you're attributing it to the writer and it really could have been either way because we don't know a whole lot about the sort of backstory we know a little more now we know a little bit but like yeah i mean that's that's the transition let's get into mank um david fincher's first movie in six years written by his father jack fincher um starring gary oldman as herman mankiewicz as well as amanda seyfried lily collins uh charles dance tom burke amongst others and yeah this movie is it was sort of billed as the the telling of the creation of Citizen Kane, and that's why I was so excited for this movie. This movie, I, I think it's very good. It's a Fincher movie. It's it's gonna be good, mm-hmm. but it's not what it was billed as, and it's not what I was expecting because it's like it's about politics and government yes. and how that influenced Hollywood. Yes. And I found it interesting, but it just wasn't what I wanted out of Mank. And I really, you know minor not really a spoiler but a bit of a sort of hint to where the direction of the movie goes it it focuses so much on you know it it employs a lot of inspiration from citizen kane obviously in the way that the narrative structure is focused how it jumps back and forth in time and whatever and there's all these Mm -hmm, different people telling the narratives and weaving in a different way and telling it from different perspectives and whatnot so that's obviously a clear homage to citizen kane and Um, shot in black and white (laughs) yeah shot in black and white it looks beautiful uh, all, um, all things considered but like it's so focused on that that you don't really get, you know, the whole story behind Citizen Kane is that there was this battle behind the scenes about credit, who's going to get credit for writing. And it's really only one scene in mm-hmm. Mank where, where, um, where Orson Welles and Herman Mankiewicz get to sort of battle it out. And I just wish the like that scene was so good. I wish the entire movie was that. And some of that hinges on it. Like Gary Ullman, you know, you know what you're talking about, how like, uh, Citizen Kane, Charles, uh, 
Kane falls into the sort of background of that movie. I feel like Gary Oldman sort of falls into the background of this movie. Mm. Like, even though he is in every single scene, like he just doesn't quite steal the show you a way you'd expect Gary Oldman to in a role like this. And, and like, I was, I've been touting this guy since God, like two years ago, souvenir came out, right? Tom Burke, oh, Tom Burke, Tom yes. Burke as Orson Welles. And I, I put out like a tweet or something. I remember saying it, putting it out into the ether somewhere that Tom Burke was going to win an Oscar for playing Orson Welles. This man is like Orson Welles reincarnated in this movie, but he's only in like five minutes. So he's like, he doesn't get the time to really flesh out that role because in the perform in the performance when he is on screen as Orson Welles, he is the living embodiment of Orson Welles, but he's only in like two scenes. So you don't get enough time with him. I just wish... I like this movie a lot. I'm being very harsh on it. I just wish it had spent more time on the actual (laughs) credit battle and the sort of disputes between Arson Wells and Herman Mankiewicz. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's the same way. I think I didn't expect it to be this uh, power struggle between Mank and his producers, Mank versus his like uh, political ideals, essentially. But it's very interesting to see how he gets inspiration from his own life and injects it into like the to the script of of Citizen Kane because I was reading the trivia for Citizen Kane a a little bit and every time it was nominated or like the nomination was announced for its nine Oscars it was booed every single time during the the Academy Awards and you know um, William William Randolph Hearst actually went out of his way because he he despised the script so much that he was just calling Orson Welles and Mank communists because he wanted people to perceive this movie as you know, uh, as a bomb and people like it, it did bomb in the box. It's like no one, no one saw it. Um, RKO, the the production company who who um, gave Orson Welles and make the money to create this movie, put it just just like took it out of theaters quickly, put it in their vault. But if you consider the context of Citizen Kane, you have this struggling alcoholic who hasn't put a, a, a out a great a movie or a script in like God knows how long. You have a budding, you know, rookie twenty-four year old who whose only experience in the industry is him being on radio. And you have this failing radio industry, failing failing radio company who is just giving Orson Welles this like young twenty-four year old guy completely free reign to create this movie to save them from economic collapse. And you know, if you can that's like a that's a recipe for disaster. But the fact that it created Citizen Kane is like lightning in a bottle. Like if you put these factors together, you would say that this a movie like Citizen Kane shouldn't exist. And the context that Mank gives it further proves that fact because you know Mank is cons- Herman Mank was played by Gary Oldman's like fucking drunk the entire fucking movie. Yeah. And <laughs> it, there's no way to kind of put yourself in that same mindset of these individuals back in what 1939, 1938, and creating a movie like Citizen Kane and the way that it turned out, like it won its Oscar, and you can tell that. You know, Fincher—it's—it's it's like a Fincher passion project. He really wanted to tell this story because of the fact that of its historical context and, and the script was the way by that you know exactly, and the fact that Mank is pretty much you know like look like, like the end credits. I don't know if this is a spoiler. It's, it's, it's history at this point, but like he never went to write another movie after Citizen Kane. He died at the age of fifty-five of alcoholism. He never conquered his addiction, and you know he was. Comp- Basically, like I, I, I would consider myself pretty educated within the history of cinema. I don't think I've really read the name Mankiewicz when I'm reading about the history of cinema. So it's very justifiable for somebody like David Fincher to create a movie like this because of the impact that Mank had on the industry. 
any um any like standout performances or standout scenes we're being yes. harsh on this movie so i do want to celebrate a little bit <laughs> no so i the scene that i thought was incredible like fucking insane to me was the uh the birthday scene for mayor one of the partners for metro golden meyer um and that in the house of uh, william hurst it's like in these scenes like a, a scene like that you would think people were just like talking amongst themselves you would hear the rabble of you know people just you know talking and like a birthday party but like the way it's treated it's like a giant dialogue where people don't step on each other's toes they're talking about politics they're talking about the industry but it flows so well like i was completely yeah. entranced by that and it's followed up by another great you know shot between um or a great scene between Seyfried and, and Oldman where they're just walking around on the, the estate of yep. William Hurst and mm-hmm. they're just talking about it, about their lives and their ideals and, you know, what's going on within the industry and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, following these two scenes together, like, I'm, I, I want to give, like, a round of applause to uh, Jack Fincher for creating the script because yeah. it's insanely well done. And the scene where uh, Gary Oldman is, like, completely drunk and delivers, like, this, I don't know, I, I would guess it's like, like a five-page monologue. He basically like, summarizes you know, Citizen Kane. Off, <laughs> yeah, towards William Hurst, played by Charles Dance and and, and Mayer, and that in the ending scene, and I think that's those three scenes were yeah. my favorite of the movie. The one that I was going to point out. Wait, was, hold on. Let me let, let, let me ask you: Was Bill Nye in this movie? Was he playing Bill Upton Nye? Sinclair? Uh, Bill I Nye. I thought it was Bill Nye. Hold on. Uh, let me look it up real quick. Yeah, you we'll look, look it up. up. Well, you go I, with your thing. Yeah, I was gonna just say that the sa- the scene that you <laughs> talked about with uh with Oldman and Seafried, um, who Minkowitz and uh, Marion Davies outside of uh William Randall Hurst's Hearst estate, that was definitely my favorite scene as well. And, and I want to give a shout out to Amanda Seafried because like she feels like one of these actors who's really extremely talented, but has just never quite gotten the like the correct role to like utilize her and she you know she's done indie projects like first reform that have gotten her a lot of critical acclaim it seems like this is gonna shoot her on the path towards her first oscar and i think very much deservedly so i think she's really really good in this movie is marion davies um just to kind of give a window into that that era of hollywood and, and what the people were like back then I, I, she's not in a lot of the movie but she's in just enough for me to say like this is one of my favorite performances of her it's it's very interesting to see how the talk of like the Red Scare, socialism, and communism essentially shaped Hollywood in the 40s and 50s because that was a huge talking point within Trumbo as well. So I'm really curious as to how like that's panned out since then. Like, how do people talk about it within the industry? Like, you know, what do they think about socialism? What do they think about communism and how they treated their stars back then because of their ideals? But I will say this that was Bill Nye. Oh, was it really? I don't remember that. Yeah, he was like the guy Alpton Sinclair. I I heard the voice. Yeah, and I saw his side profile. They never get they never give a full view of him, but he's doing uh-huh. like a rally. He's giving a speech as Upton Sinclair, and that was Bill Nye on screen. I know it's se- I know what scene you're talking about. That's a good catch. I would have never I would have <laughs> never like, seen that. Wow. I was like I was like, is that Bill Nye? Wow. Why the fuck is Bill Nye in a David Fincher movie? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I had no idea, huh? I'm surprised no, no, not more people are talking about this. That's really I'm about a two. That's a, that's a really good find. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, I guess we're, bo- we're both sort of on the same page as this, which doesn't happen very often. So I'm glad I'll, to hear I'll, that. I'll, 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 I'll say this. I hope that Fincher goes back to like his thriller mystery appeal, though. And let's hope because he doesn't take a six-year I'll, I'll, break. I'll, yeah, because like biopics, he's done Zodiac. Zodiac was a great movie, and he's done Social Network was another biopic. But mm. Mank, 
Um, I wouldn't say it's the strongest suit, but I still think it's a good movie. Yeah, exactly. It's, it falls a little bit middle of the road for me as well. Um, let's yes. close things out yeah. with Mando uh, chapter 14, right? Um, I think it's chapter yes. 14. Uh, let's just go right into spoilers, because I think you can't really talk about this episode without really getting into spoilers, mm-hmm. um, because sort of right off the bat, as Ahsoka uh, gave Mando the task of in the previous episode, he goes to this rock to for grogu um to basically channel the force and maybe call out to other jedi mando reaches there puts grogu on the rock stuff starts happening magical stuff starts happening and and finally boba fett shows up finally (laughs) yeah finally boba fett shows up um and we get that character weaved back into the story ming na wen also shows up from season one i believe her character's name is finnick um she we got like i guess we got like a sort of tease of boba fett as well because when we saw finnick last we assumed she was dead and there was like a foot that stepped next to her so that must have been boba fett's foot um mm. or at least a sort of hint of that so i thought that was pretty interesting but yeah, yeah these two characters are paired was together that the, was that the bounty hunter episode yeah yeah i think so okay um but yeah All so right. these two characters are paired <laughs> together they show up um and what i was surprised by actually is that boba fett's not really an antagonist he actually you know there's a quick little dispute between him and, and mando and then they're sort of on the same page. He gets his armor. He's happy. That was one of the best scenes in the entire episode. Actually, let me ask mm. you, when the ship started coming, did you know that that was Boba Fett's ship or did you have no idea? I had no clue. I thought it was the Jedi. Like, wow, they're going to bring the Jedi this quick into the into the fold because so, like, like, you, see, you see Grogu up on the on the stone. He's doing his fucking wizard shit and he's, like, you see beams going on the sky. Yeah. But and I see the ship comes like, wow, that was quick. <laughs> yeah. So if you're if you're like a Star Wars geek, you you would have noticed that that was you would have known immediately that that was Boba Fett's ship. His ship is very very iconic for for Star Wars like hardcore Star Wars fans. So like I, I knew mm. immediately when I saw the ship, I was like, oh, that's Boba Fett. Finally, we're getting Boba Fett. But I was just surprised that they sort of put them on the same side and, and you know they're fighting and then Grogu gets kidnapped basically by Moff Gideon's the dark troopers, right? That's what we're calling them. Dark is it dark or Darth troopers? I think it's dark. dark. It's dark. Okay, dark troopers. It's um, dark. I, I really, really like this episode. I mean, the series has found its footing, and that's what's most exciting to me. We've had, like, three hits in a row, and it just feels like now that it's really in the deep trenches of what the actual storyline is, it's hitting and firing on all cylinders. It's really, really good now. Yeah, yeah, it's insanely well done, like, the choreography and all that. I think the way that they introduced Tamara Morrison's character, Boba Fett, and how they fleshed him out, like, we were talking about this in our Star Wars episodes where we didn't really understand why people love Boba Fett so much. Maybe it was because of his iconic armor or his presence in the film, but I never really considered him a huge character because he's barely in the, in, the, in, the, in the original trilogy, so I didn't really get the appeal for him, but I really got the appeal for him for, in this in this one because like yeah. he's beating the shit out of Stormtroopers with his fucking stick, and then when he comes in in his Mando armor, he just completely decimates all of them while helping one of, both one of the best and, moments. And one of the best moments when he showed, when like, you you know, like, you kind of know it's yes. coming, right? Because he's like disappeared, and then he shows up with the armor, and you're just like, oh god, yes, you know, it feels you, so good. <laughs> You know, you know what's so funny about that? If you can, if you think about what's happening off screen, like both Fennec and Din are—I uh, keep calling him Din as a Mando, but it's Mando and Din—are fighting off the stormtroopers. But if you think about it, he's just like going through the Razor Crest looking for his armor to come right. back. To the fight. He's like he's like sneaking around rocks and like probably like doing an army crawl in the bushes yeah. to get the Mando ship so he can get his armor. And once he gets it, he saves he saves their asses, which is really funny to see. Yeah, but um. A big scene I wanted to talk about with this episode was uh, 
uh, a Grogu actually using the Force for his own safety. Sure. Like he's captured in this in this episode, and he's in the little cage with uh, Moff Gideon's troopers. But he's like throwing them around like they're like yeah. basketballs in that in that room, and it's hilarious <laughs> to see. But then like I was like, but then you see him get like really tired. Like he he's like Moff Gideon walks into the room, and. He's like, he's like, oh, you're sleepy, aren't you? He's like, no, like, I was like, please don't do anything to him. Please don't do anything to him. Please don't do because he's, he's, he's like, he's like, all, oh, uh, uh. he's like, he's like falling asleep. He's like covering his face, and you see how defenseless he is. And I was like, come on, please, just, just give him back to Mando and just end the show because I don't want any harm to come to this child because I'm really attached to Grogu at this point. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I, I'm, a, I'm on a 100% the same page because, like, yeah, when, when he, I mean, like. You, if you recall, like the earlier episodes of this, or actually, like it was like se- episode season one, episode three, and season one, episode seven. I think in both of those episodes, um, Grogu is kidnapped, and like those scenes, like he feels so helpless and, and defenseless in those moments. But then, yeah, you go to like that scene in, in that where he's trapped and he's just like throwing these stormtroopers around like it's no effort, and you you know you kind of get an idea of how powerful he is and what risk he could actually pose to Moff Gideon if he takes advantage of his powers. But there is that sort of I, I like that they gave him a little bit of weakness that he is you know he's a baby he does get tired he he gets he's fifty three years old he's a grown ass man he's a baby he's baby Yoda he's not grown ass man Yoda he's baby Yoda so he um, I, I just I just like that they give him he's a grown ass man who takes candy from kids yeah exactly. <laughs> That's still my favorite episode, or my favorite part of this entire series so far. Um, but yeah, I'll say quick, but I just think it's very, very cute as to how he, like, 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 uh, Din was like calling him Grogu, and you hear him go, er? Yeah. Er? Yeah. And it's like really cute to see how they interact with each other because of that. I don't like, though, there's this term has been used a few times, ding ferric. You, have you heard them say that a few times? I don't like that phrase. It sounds really- like, like as a as a as a reaction, like damn it or yeah, yeah or whatever it is. Pretty much, yeah. It's like it, it's like their version of God damn it or some something like that. But it just sounds really like, awkward. Fuck yeah, yeah. Basically, <laughs> basically, yeah. It just sounds really awkward to me. I don't like it. Um, but uh, yeah, I I'm wondering. It sounds like it's somebody's name. I'm wondering if like when when Grogu was sitting on the rock and channeling the powers, like I imagine that he got a signal out to somebody, right? Because he was on there for a while using whatever force powers he was using I, I imagine that somebody had to have sensed that right um at this point i think he stopped voluntarily okay right because he was just, he was just sitting on a rug just waiting for uh Mando to come back to him yeah and then you see the dark troopers just around him he was like he was lucid about what was happening he, was like, he wasn't knocked out so i think he probably did con- come into contact with somebody but i'm curious as to who because i saw recently i forgot about this theory is the fact that Mace Windu is somebody who the the fans think are still alive after episode three. Do you think it could be Mace Windu they bring it back into the fold? I think Mace Windu's dead. I we've had okay. Boba Fett come back. I don't need more characters to come back from the dead. We've had we've had bad characters like with the Palpatine situation. Like we've had characters that have come back from the dead that haven't played out well. Like it's just too risky. It, it, I think it's sort of a soft spot right now for Star Wars fans because characters coming back from the dead is just not. It hasn't resulted in the best stories in recent examples of Star I was Wars. I was thinking maybe that they could have I, I, it didn't happen in this episode I was thinking maybe that they could have brought in the force ghost it could have been uh Anakin talking mm. to Grogu yeah but they didn't do that but like I was also thinking maybe what's the character's name from the Star Wars video game that came out recently Unleashed oh Not Unleashed um I know the actor is Sam Witt Cal Kestis Cal Kestis okay okay is that the one that so just like the, the, that's the game that just came yes. out Okay. So like the the list of possible Jedi that Grogu could have come in contact with is Luke, 
Kyle Kestis, Ezra, who we talked about last week, mm-hmm. Quinlan Voss, who I don't know who that is, Voss, Miss yeah. Windu, and and Yaddle, who is the female version of Yoda, who we didn't get to see much of in the sequel yeah. prequel trilogy. Yeah, prequel yeah. Trilogy. I mean, again, like unless there are other Jedi out that we just don't know about, which I think I'd be okay with even getting a connection to a character that we haven't. No, I feel like if they did that, that would have lessened the impact of Rey in her story in the sequel trilogy. You think so? Because like, but like from your perspective, because like you, you remember a couple episodes you were talking about a couple episodes ago, you said something along the lines of how, because you didn't really have the connection to a lot of these characters from like the animated series, you didn't feel like the hype that a lot of other people were, were showing. Like, mm-hmm. would you be any more excited or would it fall, like hit you in any different way if it was a character that everybody is new to? I would prefer either, so my ranking would be somebody I already know Okay. Or somebody that's brand new to the series, and the last one being someone who's already introduced into like like the books or the video games or okay. the shows. Okay, that's fair. In that, in that order, but I'm still, you know, I'm you no. Know, the show's doing a really good job at this point. Like, this is what we wanted out of the show. Yeah. Just narratively driven episodes, and we're getting that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's hope these last two episodes from you were you were the one that brought it up right last time that you you saw a tweet or something from an animator on the series that said the art like, director. The art director. Okay, so he said the last three episodes are uh, strap in for the last three episodes or something like that. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm excited. I, I think this sets up for a really really great final two episodes, and I'm hoping that it sticks the landing because I'm on board now. <laughs> I'm on board now. I'm really curious as to see what they're gonna do with Grogu and his quote unquote M, M count. Do you think that they're gonna bring that? Because there's in two episodes, that's a lot of material to cover, right? I imagine that's still going to feed into season three. Mm, I think since they already have him and Moff getting called the doctor over to his ship, they're mm-hmm. going to reveal to us what mm-hmm. they're going to use him for in the next episode. Okay, fair. Because why would they like do that for for longer? I don't that's, think they want to stretch it out even further. That's a good point. Actually, I didn't think of, I didn't think about the doctor scene. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll talk about episode 15, right? 15, I guess. I don't know. I've completely lost track. <laughs> we'll talk about whatever episode it is next week on that episode because that'll bring us to a close for this episode. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Sam, let people know where they can find you online. You can find me on Twitter at Sam0so and on my Instagram at SamOsorio, O-S-O-R-I-O. And yes, the next one is chapter 15. All right, thank you. <laughs> you can find me at Rodsa236. So please be sure to check out our show notes for research on Black Lives Matter. Also be sure to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. Share with your friends, family. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, and all the other popular platforms. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next time.